find your place in the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 21, where we left off last week. Sister Francis's travel group has some of our members captured at sea, and uh, so we're down just a little bit, but we've got a good-looking group in here, and the ones who join us online, we're always glad to have them. And then those who watch the recorded version later on, glad when you're able to do that. And across the world, some of the people aren't up yet. It's 11 o'clock at night where they are, so they may have to watch us later. And I'm thankful that we can record these lessons on Facebook. 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 21. Last week at the close of our lesson, you may have wondered if I got on a topical soapbox about youth groups, and we were in verse 21, and we came across a statement about the house of Baal, and it said the house of Baal was full from one end to another. When a church member or a pastor says, the church was full today, we had a full house. Well, many other church leaders and sometimes members want to know, how do you do that? What's the secret? How do you pack those pews like that? I want our church to have every pew filled. So last week we looked at what many denominations do to bring people in and keep them there. Not all, but many to fill their houses of worship from one end to another. And in verse-by-verse teaching, we never stumble across a particular topic. We arrive at it in God's time, just like he puts it in his word. And you might say, well, he didn't talk about youth groups right there. No, he talked about a principle. And that principle is what does it take to fill a house, fill a house of worship. And what will people do to fill that house with bodies, with people, from one end to another? And I told you about a church of which I had been a member a long time ago and which resorted to all sorts of things to keep the youth there or to attract them, but also to attract and keep adults. And the problem was that most of those youth, in that case, were unsaved. So it was no surprise that their desires were carnal. They didn't know anything about the Bible, and they weren't real concerned about the Bible. And the few that were, were uh, an anomaly. They were, that was unusual. That was the remnant And then the second church I joined after that one had one thing for the youth, and that was God's Word. And I sure appreciated that. We didn't have a big youth group at that church. In fact, we didn't have what you would call a youth group. We had a few Sunday school classes so that the children could understand on their level before they went to the next level. But we had families with children who came together to church, and they came together to learn the Bible. 
Because if they didn't come to learn the Bible, they didn't stay very long. They didn't like what we had, then they left. And I appreciated that pastor for being committed. And you know what? We never did fill that house from one end to the other. And I have a very strongly held conviction that as soon as children are able to pay attention and then understand what's being taught in here, then they come in here. And for children, that's a different age. Some get it when they're younger, and others it takes a little while, and that's okay. But at some point, that's what we want. We want everybody to be in here who's capable of being in here. And at this church, we have classes for little children. My daughter's teaching one right now. And the, uh, they're not able to comprehend much of the doctrines that, that we can. In fact, Sarah was sharing with me this morning on the way to church. I said, what are you teaching your littles? That's what I call them, your littles. And she said, well, about Abram and Lot. And she said, the children's Bible I gave her, it's, it's not a funny picture book. It's one that I had, it's this thick. And it tells those stories on a level that they can understand. She said, I noticed that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not in there. I said, well, there's a reason for that. But uh, so the level at which she can approach Sodom and Gomorrah with little children is somewhat restricted. She can tell them about wickedness. But to explain the specific wickedness, they don't understand. And there's a time when they will arrive at the ability to understand that. So what do our teachers do? They teach these little ones the Bible. They don't say, well, they don't understand the Bible, so we're just going to do other things. They use crafts and drawings to reinforce the lessons and to take advantage of the mindset and the attention span that little children have. To ask a child to sit still for 45 minutes and listen to, to theology, to doctrine such as this, is exceeding their ability to do so. It's not reasonable to do that. To ask a 56-year-old to do that is very reasonable, to sit here and to listen and to take notes or to mentally absorb what's being taught. But what we don't do is take them to Starbucks for coffee instead of the Bible or let them play basketball while their parents are being taught the Bible in the auditorium. And with all that being said, we know there are children or churches that have large children's bus ministries. Some of them have the water slides and the game rooms and the all sorts of playthings. And listen, if a church has a playground, I don't care. That's wonderful. If after church the children want to get on the playground and slide and swing, outstanding. If their parents want to bring them up there on a Saturday and do that, wonderful. I don't have anything against any of that. But when those things are used to substitute for the teaching of God's Word in the precious little time that we have them here, or we have you here, then that is an abomination. That's trying to fill the house from one end to the other. Because what little child doesn't want to go swing on the swing and uh, play on the slide and so forth? So what happens is in those situations where the playing is substituted for the teaching, that they need to have. Those children grow up in church thinking church is a place to go play. 
It's an extension of their playground or of their backyard or their swing set at home. And it's no wonder that a church that will do that to get people in is just filling the house from one end to another. And they're really not any different than this church of Baal that we're reading about here. And I'm going to say something to you here that I want you to understand in the spirit in which it's given. It's not being prideful, I don't think at all. I would suggest to you that the children who come to Sunday school in this church faithfully know their Bibles better than most children, in fact, more than many adults, in some of the churches that have all the bells and the whistles and the the high-intensity light shows and all of that. And the reason for that is the, the pastoral staff here demands it. The parents, the members expect it. And it's, it's not that we're super special. It's not that we're better than other people. But it does mean we're different than most churches. And it's sad. It shouldn't be that way. The Lord's church, although people are different in characteristic and makeup and some cultural habits and all that, but across the world, the Lord's church ought to be doing the same thing regardless where it is. It ought to be teaching the Bible and praising God and in song and encouraging one another, doing the things the Bible tells us to do when we get together. And once again, it's by God's grace or God's grace that's shown through the obedience of his people here that we choose not to fill this church from one end to another through worldly means. We're just not going to do it. So if somebody comes and they look around and they say, huh, I don't know if I want to go to church here. Most of the pews are empty. If that was their reason for coming, they wouldn't stay anyway. The house of Baal was full from one end to another. So the question here is, what will be the testimony of the average church? Remember, this house of Baal was made up of those who were racially and nationally Israelites, children of Israel. And just as there were professing Israelites who were spiritually lost... There are professing Christians, that is, those who say I'm a Christian, but who are lost. They're not any more Christians than this pulpit is a Christian. They profess to be Christians, but they're counterfeit. They don't believe the gospel, and their churches are just places to go have solemn assemblies. So now let's listen to what God said about these solemn assemblies in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, Isaiah 1, 10 through 17, Isaiah said, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain, that means useless, oblations, those are offerings, incense, 
is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. There's our word assemblies. I cannot away with it. That means I can't stand it. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Now, what is a solemn assembly? A solemn assembly, regardless of whether it's religious or not, a solemn assembly is a meeting that is set apart for a purpose. It's dedicated to a purpose. So when the commissioner's court meets every other Tuesday or every second and fourth Tuesday in Rockwall County, that's a solemn meeting. The commissioner's court is there to discuss what's on the agenda and not anything else. They're not here to talk about uh, when the tractor pull is coming to Rockwall County, unless it's on the agenda. It's on the agenda, they'll talk about it. So in that respect, it's a solemn assembly. God actually commanded his people to have solemn assemblies, such as the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The problem wasn't that the assemblies that God commanded were bad. They weren't. They were holy. The problem was that the assemblers, the assembly goers were bad. God gave them what he wanted them to do. He said, here's what I want you to do and here is how and here is when. But their minds drifted away from the truth that was supposed to hold them together in that one place where the assembly was held. You could get, you could figure out some worldly trick to fill the auditorium. And let's say that we got 250, I don't know what our maximum is in here, but let's say we got 250 people in this auditorium. I mean, you're getting to know each other. You're shoulder to shoulder, hard to turn a page, right? And I got up here and I told those 250 people, here's what we're going to do. For the rest of your natural life that you are here in this church, we're going to learn this book. And that's what we're going to do. Then many of those people would go, oh, okay. And they might come back again. But then after the carnal ones figured out that what we're going to do is study the Bible verse by verse, they would stop coming. The excuses would pile up and they'd say, well, you know, I, I, uh, the last church I went to, the pastor was a little bit more dynamic or we had some uh, other special activities that we would uh, engage in during church, and we would do this and we would do that. And you know what would happen? The pews would look like they are right now at some point. The herd would get thinned out. That's fine. You may say, well, Brother Andy, that's kind of insensitive that you would want those people to leave. If they're not interested in God's Word, they don't need to be here. Now, they need God's Word, and they need to be here. But if they're not interested, we're not going to try to keep them here because we have nothing else for them. In Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, 
Amos 5, 21 through 24, God said, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down his waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. In that verse, God didn't say he hated assemblies. He said he hated your solemn assemblies, what you've done to them. And that's the implication back in the Isaiah passage I read you too. Even though he doesn't put the possessive pronoun your in front of each of those things, when he said he hated incense, it wasn't that God hated the command to burn incense on the incense altar because he's the one who commanded the children of Israel to build that and to put it in there, in the tabernacle. It was that the way they burn incense and the reason for which they burn incense was wrong. And that's what God hated. So when they burn incense, it didn't smell good to him. In fact, in that passage in Isaiah, the assemblies, the offerings, the prayers, the incense, all of that were originally pure. Those were things God commanded the children of Israel to embrace. He commanded the priests, the Levites, to carry out those ceremonies to offer those offerings, and it's in great detail in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the children of Israel, as is the case here in the house of Baal, had turned all of these into their own brand of religion. See, that's where the problem is. God loves when his people come together. God hates when people come together in his name and they do something besides what he said to do. God doesn't hate religion that's pure. He hates defiled religion. He doesn't hate his church. He hates the false church. And there are false brethren who have crept in unawares, just as the Apostle Paul warned, and also as the Apostle Jude wrote. And to those false brethren, which include those who claim to be spiritual Israelites, that is, the born again of all ages. Jesus gave this stern warning in Revelation 3, verse 9, when he was speaking to the church of Philadelphia. And he said, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews... And are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. How about that? The ones who are trying to fill the house of Baal from one end to another, the ones who claim to be Jews, which is a type of a Christian in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were supposed to represent the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who claim to be Jews, claim to be Christians, they're going to worship God before the feet of the very ones who preach the truth to them. 
So all of that stuff they did in church, all of those assemblies they had, and all of the incense they burnt, and the prayers they offered, and the speeches they made, all of that is going to be done away with, and they're going to acknowledge God, and they're going to do it before the feet of the people who preach the truth. That's what it'll all come back to. So these poor pastors, who uh, some of whom are full-time pastors, and they barely have enough money to eat rice and beans. Thank God our church is so kind to our pastor and to, and to me also. When, and we're blessed to have secular jobs. We don't ever have that problem. But there are pastors in other places who have small congregations and they're barely scraping by. And sometimes they must wonder, is this really worth it? Yes, it is. Because one day that huge mega church that got there by worldly means and by avoiding the hard doctrines of the Bible, those people who claim to be Christians are going to come and worship the Lord. In other words, they're going to acknowledge him at the feet of those pastors who preach the truth, at the feet of the people who believe the truth. So we're going to win in the end, right? We've already won, but we're going to get to experience it in the end. And I pray that our little church would never, ever strive for these solemn assemblies like the house of Baal, but that we would be content. That doesn't mean complacent. It means content to assemble ourselves together in the name of the Lord and in obedience to his command to teach his word and to learn his word. And if this house is filled to the brim or if it's barely occupied by a few hungry souls and those who watch on the internet, there are billions of people across the world, but there's a handful who watch on the internet, then I pray that it would be only God's truth that would bring us and those people together and bind us in unity. That's the only thing about which we care and the only reason that we need to be united. This interfaith stuff, there is one faith. <laughs> and the rest of them are false. We don't embrace, we don't hold hands physically or spiritually with the Bahia religion or with Buddhists or with any other religion that denies the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't pray with them, we pray for them, but we don't pray to their God, we don't acknowledge their gods. Those are false gods. Now let's look at verse 22. As Jehu said, he said unto them that was over the vestry. He said unto him that was over the vestry. The vestry is the wardrobe and the vestments are the clothing worn by the worshipers. He said, bring forth vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. And he brought them forth vestments. Jehu wanted every Baal worshiper in that house to be clothed in the vestments of the Baal worshiper. Probably so, there would be no mistake in identifying them for what was about to come. The wearing of the vestments, the, the, award, the apparel, identified these people with a common belief. These vestments were man-made. And they were to be worn only by the worshipers of Baal. That's very important. 
So if the wheels are turning in your head right now, you may be thinking, wow, all of the Baal worshipers had their own clothing. They had something that set them apart from everyone else. And just as the physical clothing of those Baal worshipers identified them as Baal worshipers, we who worship the Lord in spirit and truth have a different clothing that identifies us. And it's not the choir robe or this suit that I'm wearing or anything else. It's not the fancy robes worn by the priests and, or any man-made apparel, but it is found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8, where it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, that is to the Lord. For the marriage of the Lamb with a capital L is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now that's the church. That's all of the believers of all time. There's not this separate wife and bride and church and all that. It's, we're all, all one. Brother Fulton alluded to the Baptist brighter uh, theology, which is, is a heresy. Because the Bible tells us that the bride is the wife. There's not, there's not a difference. And it says about this wife in that passage, and to her that is to the Lord's church, was granted that she should be arrayed or dressed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So don't go buy something that's white linen and wear it around and say, see here, this marks, you have dirt on it already. As soon as your grubby fingers touch it, it's of this world. Linen is a type So the clothing that we wear as Christians, although our bodies, because God said cover it up, our bodies are covered right now, our physical bodies, they're going to die and the clothes are not going to look very good after a while on that dead body, are they? But the clothes we wear are not of this world. The The priests in the Old Testament wore linen breeches at certain points and David wore a linen ephod and a linen robe. All of those garments were made by man, but they pointed to a spiritual truth. They represented a spiritual truth that's going to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation in that text that I just read you. Because that clothing that we wear is righteousness. That's our clothing. It's the righteousness of Christ that he gave us when we put our trust in him for salvation. We exchanged our unrighteousness, our filthy rags, as Isaiah called them, for the righteousness of Christ. And that's what we wear. No, you don't see it here. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says, because the world does, in a way, see our apparel, see what we wear. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So put on, that word is, or those two words are used twice there. Put ye on, put ye on. The armor of light and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the same. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus was uh, was and is and always will be the light that gives life to man, that gives eternal life to man. How does the world see that we have those clothes? By what the Apostle Paul said, not making provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, but to walk honestly. To walk so that when I say I'm a Christian and then you watch me in my, my worldly conversation, meaning as I live in this world, you watch how, how I walk, how I talk, where I go, what I do, what I don't do, what I say, what I don't say, you'll say, yeah, he's walking honestly. He's, he's who he says he is. The devil doesn't want that. If you're a Christian, the devil would rather you believe, okay, I'm, I'm once saved, always saved, which is true. But, hey, you don't have to show out like that. You don't have to walk honestly. Enjoy yourself. You're only going to be here a short time. So that others look at us and say, well, he says he's a Christian, but I don't see him walking honestly, so it's hard for me to tell. No, let our clothes of righteousness be apparent to others. That's why Paul told Christians. He didn't say put you on the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be saved. He was already writing to believers. He said put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk honestly. That means your, your, your conversation your manner of living so that others may see. So if you want people to see Jesus in you, then let them see your armor of light. Don't let them see the works of darkness. And the doctrine of wisdom about which we are learning on Wednesday nights is consistent throughout the Bible. It's not just in Proverbs. The wisdom of God is contained through all of the scriptures. Every book of the Bible is about God's wisdom. And we studied these verses a, a few weeks ago, Proverbs 4, verses 18 through 19. Proverbs 4, 18 through 19, where it says, But the path of the just is as the shining light, and shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness, they know not at what they stumble. So isn't that plain enough? God never changes what he says about wisdom. He never changes what he says about the wisdom of this world compared to his wisdom. The contrast between darkness and light. It's consistent throughout the Old and the New Testament. Now let's look in verse 23. So now all these Baal worshippers should have their identifying clothing on. And Jehu went and Jehonadab the son of Rechab into the house of Baal and said unto the worshipers of Baal, Search, and look that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but the worshipers of Baal only. Now the purpose of this diligent search was to make sure that no, not one, no servant of the Lord was included in the pouring out of the wrath that was about to come. This is so encouraging. People who are weak and unsteady in the faith, 
people who've had their consciences wounded by false brethren and false prophets and preachers sometimes wonder if God really does care about them. They wonder maybe if God has forgotten about them in this sea of sinful humanity out here in which they live. Does he really see these feeble servants through the person of his son, Jesus? Those kinds of things are on their minds. But this verse right here teaches us that God will not let one of his servants, meaning his people, not one Christian, be lost and therefore on the receiving end of his wrath. Not one. In fact, did you know this principle can be found as early as the book of Exodus in the study of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt? I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 9. I want you to listen for this principle of not one, not one that God missed. Exodus 9 verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto the Pharaoh and tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if thou refuse to let them go, and wilt hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous murrain. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow. And all the cattle of Egypt died, listen to this, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one, not even one that may have been mixed in with the cattle of Egypt. God knew every single, even sickly little heifer. Old, washed-up bull that was ready to die and walking around with a limp. He knew every one of them. He knew every one that belonged to the children of Israel and every one that belonged to Egypt. And the mightiest, big-chested bull who dominated the fields, God said, no, you're not one of mine. You don't belong to my children. You're going to get the moraine just like the rest of them. Jesus again taught this principle in Luke chapter 12. I'm trying to encourage you here. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. He said, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? Listen. And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So if not one sparrow was forgotten before God, and if ye and me are of more value than many sparrows, then not one of you who are his will be forgotten by him. Isn't that comforting? And in making sure the house of Baal included not one servant of the Lord, 
we also learn that every servant that was, every servant of Baal, every worshiper of Baal that was in that house was going to be judged. None of God's servants would be, but every one of the Baal worshipers would be. Jehu is not going to forget to judge even one of the worshipers of Baal. Now that truth that comforts us condemns the worshipers of Baal, doesn't it? It condemns the unbeliever. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Ephesians 5, verses 5 through 6. Speaking to the church at Ephesus, he said, For this ye know that no, how many is that? That's no, zero, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And just to remind you, this chapter contrasted those who were saved from those who were lost. It's not teaching that a Christian has to avoid sin in order to have inheritance in the kingdom of God. That is a misteaching, misapplication of this. But notice it said the word no, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor any of those other. So how many of these children of disobedience will escape the wrath of God? None. Not one. Just like not one of God's people will be appointed to wrath, not one. Not one of these unbelievers will be spared from wrath. Jehu is teaching us about that in this text, if we'll learn it. Verse 24 and 25, I'll read together. And when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed fourscore men without and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them, let none Come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal. Eighty men received binding orders to go in and slay every single worshiper of Baal. And to fail at this mission was to forfeit their own lives. To spare one Baal worshiper was to tread on the holiness of God for the sake of men. Maybe this helps you understand why God commanded his children, the children of Israel, to completely wipe out their enemies when he led them to do so. You know what he was teaching them? He wasn't teaching them about how cruel he is because he's not. He's a just God. He's righteous. He knows who will and won't repent. He was teaching them about his uncompromising holiness and his hatred of sin. Next door, Brother Fulton is teaching the Genesis to Jesus class, and today they're talking about the fall of man. Do you know what person has to understand before they understand how serious the fall of man is? They have to understand the holiness of God. 
If you don't understand the holiness of God or you don't believe it, and some preacher comes up and says, do you realize you're a sinner? You know what you'll say? Yeah, but I'm not as bad as Ronnie. I'm not as bad as Andy. Or an has done worse than me. But if you understand the holiness of God and that we're not comparing ourselves among ourselves, we're comparing ourselves to God, then everyone falls short. He was teaching them about the holiness of God. And that order was given and it was executed. And apparently this was a satellite church of Baal because verse 25 tells us that Jehu and his men afterward went to the city of the house of Baal. So let's look at verse 26. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal. Now this would be Jehu's men. And burned them and they break down the image of Baal and break down the house of Baal and made it a draft house unto this day. That doesn't mean a beer barn. A draught, draught or draft, however you say it, uh, house unto this day. So notice three things that were done to these images of Baal. One, they were brought forth. That is, they were brought out. Brought out of the house of worship. It's bad enough that the images were fashioned in the first place. Because God said in the first part of Exodus 20 verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. He said, don't even make them. But to not only make the graven image, but then also to set it up in a place of worship. That compounded the problem because God said this about those graven images in Exodus 20 verse 5, first part of verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Don't make them. And if somebody does make them, don't bow down and serve them. And the bowing down and the serving them, it was about what happened in the house of Baal. Now the second thing done to these images, the text says they were burned. And when something is burned down, it is a sign of judgment. When something is burned, it's purified at the same time. In the Old Testament sacrifices, you may remember that there were burnt offerings. And God commanded the people to burn the offerings in many cases. These were burnt offerings brought by man. The sin offering was burnt, as were many other offerings. So in burning these images, Jehu was simply complying with what God told the children of Israel to do with those who had gone a-whoring after other gods. God said, there's something I want you to do to their images. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 7 verse 5. God says, but thus shall ye deal with them. That is with those who go a-whoring after their false gods. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. Jehu was doing what God told his people to do in Deuteronomy. The images were made of material that God created. And he created them for our good. The gold and the precious metals and the wood and everything that was used to construct these images, those were all materials God made. He spoke them into existence. The problem was that man's sin brought a curse on those things. 
Cursed is the ground for thy sake, God said to Adam. Those things were good, but sin brought a curse upon them. Jehu didn't just grind them up or bury them or hide them in some place for a while. They were burned. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. Now, this is the scene of the white throne judgment. He said, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The lake of fire is a place, is the place of final judgment for the unbelievers, for the devil, for his angels. The lake of fire, and it burns forever and ever. The third thing done to the image was done to the image of Baal itself. There were images in the house of Baal, and then there was the image of Baal. It said in the text, and they break down the image of Baal. I don't know what that image looked like. Whether it had two heads and six arms, or maybe it looked like Buddha on the Atkins diet. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Because God said, don't make graven images or bow down to them. And the Hebrew word for breakdown is also translated in the Old Testament as the word destroy. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 5 that I read a minute ago, he said, in there you shall destroy their altars. So if you think about those altars being broken down, it's not that they were just shoved to the ground and maybe they broke in half and they were left there. They were rendered in such a condition that they could never be used again. They were destroyed. And this is consistent with what the Bible says about any person or anything that is placed alongside God or exalted above God in the eyes of man. In fact, I'll close by reading Psalm chapter 52, verses 1 through 7. I want you to listen to the, for the word destroy. And this was a psalm written by David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul about the 85 priests he had slaughtered. Why boastest thou self in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words. O thou deceitful tongue, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. What did this wicked man Doag do? He killed 85 priests in the city of Nob because they had contact with David when Saul was trying to hunt him down and kill him. But in doing so, Doag erected an altar of Baal in his heart by wiping out the priests of God. And he bragged to Saul about it, and David said the same thing's going to happen to him that happens 
to the image of Baal that was set up and worshipped by the wicked ones. God shall destroy thee forever. And we'll stop right there for sake of time and pick up next week with that part of the verse. Father, thank you for all who have come, for all who have tuned in, for all who will watch this lesson later on. And Father, may you imprint these truths into our hearts and help us to meditate upon them. For we know they're for our good, Lord. Even some of them are hard sayings, but they are to keep us from sin. And we acknowledge that today. And we thank you for being gracious to reveal your truth to us. And pray you would do so in the next hour through our pastor. May our singing and praise and encouragement of one another be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.